You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Join me for this episode is Will, man, throwing out episodes left and right right now, and... uh, it was kind of going to slow down because the season got delayed a little bit, but no, 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 no. We are hot, hot on the recruiting trail right now for the Gators and uh, some big news around the college football world. So Will Miles is going to join me for this episode. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, readandreaction.com. And Will, as I said, man, just uh, news everywhere right now. Yeah, never a dull moment, man. Every time. And we've been saying it all pandemic. Every time you think you're going to need to like <laughs> plan for content or something like that, something happens and we have something to talk about. So, you know, one of the good news, one of the good things is, is that in the SEC, we've been galvanizing around hating the Big Ten for years. And so they've just really sort of reinforced that for us today. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, obviously, a lot of big news reverberating around college football and and around the Florida program as well. When you start talking about the guys who have who've recently committed. Absolutely. As Will said, uh, the big news of the day, and we'll get into that. We'll start with the good news of recruiting, get Will's thoughts on recruiting. Uh, we'll go back to last Friday as well uh, when the SEC made the announcement of, um, uh, of the uh, ninth and 10th games uh, for the SEC. So uh, a, lot, a lot to catch up on. But, Will, man, your initial reaction to uh, Big Ten, Pac-12, deciding, look, we kind of knew it was coming Sunday. That's We started getting the reports of uh, – the, the, the uh, Big Ten and the Pac-12 are more than likely going to decide not to play football this fall. And then Monday comes, and I think there was a lot of backlash. They decided to maybe uh, table that for a day, meet again. Uh, backlash did not matter as the Big Ten and Pac-12 decided they are going to cancel football for uh, – not cancel, we cancel football for the fall, maybe delay it till the spring. We'll see how that goes. But uh, shockwaves to the college football world today, Will. Yeah, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall at those meetings, that's for sure, because I don't I don't understand the thought process. And I think the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 are sort of sitting there. You even saw it in the SEC statement that they released, you know, saying they were basically interested in understanding what information the Big 10 and the Pac-12 had that they didn't was sort of the inference from the SEC statement and and that and that's sort of the the I guess overarching theme throughout the coronavirus pandemic has been what kind of metrics are we going to be using? What kind of risks are we willing to take? And uh, obviously different people have different risk tolerances and different ideas there. So it'll be interesting to see in the coming days how the Big Ten and the Pac-12 explain why they've done what they've done and, and what the SEC and ACC and Big, T- Big 12's responses to it. Because, uh, you know, the reality is, is I think the pressures are a little bit different in those conferences down south. And I also think there's probably some opportunities here to, to sort of fill a leadership void. You know, the Big Ten stepping down disrupts what was currently going on. But 
there's always the possibility that something better rises out of it. And the, one of the risks the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are taking is that they won't be part of it. They've, they've sort of been at the forefront of, of you know, announcing, you know, they announced their schedule early and that they were only going conference only. And then they announced this early and sort of really tried to pressure some of the other conferences into sort of going along with it. I, I don't know that that's going to go over well in some of the offices in, in the SEC and in the Big 12 and in the ACC. And so we'll see what kind of partnership sort of arises from this. Obviously, the Big 10 and the Pac-12 are sort of joined at the hip. They have been since the beginning of college football with the Rose Bowl. That was one of the big really sticking points when it came to forming the BCS, when it came to forming the four-team playoff. They've always sort of marched to a beat of their different drummer, and, and that continues today. Yeah, definitely tumultuous time, so we'll see here. Uh, look, I, I don't think this really affects the um, SEC, ACC, Big 12. I don't think they're going to make their decision based on what these two conferences decided to do and, and, and not play well. As you said, there's some opportunity here for uh, these three conferences to look in. More than likely right now, the Big 12 is kind of the linchpin in this. Um, yeah, I think you look at Power 5, two decided not to play, three right now uh, have not made that decision. They And the Big 12 looks like they're meeting soon. We'll make a decision. And if they decide not to play, then you could probably see the ACC and the SEC follow suit and um, not you know decide not to play. Uh, there, but I think as long as three Power Five schools decide they're going to play and they keep that decision, then you know they'll try to kick a season off. So we'll get into all that a little bit more and, and what it means for uh, college football, the SEC, Florida, maybe in particular as well. Uh, but as I said, recruiting, uh, get uh, Will's thoughts on our the the, the schedule uh, as well. The ninth to tenth games, Arkansas and Texas A and M being added, and. Um, and a little bit more stuff there. But before we do, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as News 4 Jacks coverage of the Gators and college football. Please share, rate, and review the show. Subscribe on YouTube. And if you're listening and watching live on YouTube right now, hit that like button, subscribe. Uh, that really helps us out there. And uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform if you're in the podcast form there and follow Gators Breakdown on social media on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So Wilson, big news in the recruiting world for the Gators and of course uh we knew once August hit that it was going to be a, a big it could be a big month for the Gators or it could be a very disappointing month for the Gators and started off not so well. Leonard Taylor commits to Miami uh last week and you know sent some shockwaves a little bit of as wondering what the Miami Palmetto uh, crew would do Brashard Brashard Smith, uh, the athlete there, uh, former Gator commit had committed to Miami as well. So, would, and then we started hearing word that it, it didn't look good for Florida as far as Jason Marshall goes. And uh, Corey Collier mostly felt most you know, most felt good uh, about Florida and, and that relationship. But lo and behold, Sunday comes around, Will, and a surprise commitment. Jason Marshall picks the Gators five-star cornerback. Corey Collier a day later on Monday selects the Gators to five-star on Rivals, a really high four-star uh, prospect on the 24-7 sports composite. Well, I did a you know reaction episode yesterday, but uh, just a day later, everybody just kind of had some time to let it simmer. Uh, what's your thoughts on getting these two big pickups for the Gators? I mean, I'm thrilled, right? I mean, we, we preach recruiting here all the time, and you're not going to turn away the guys who are who are top 100 players. That's really where we – where we want to see Florida make their uh, make their way, right, with the guys who are who are 
highly ranked coming out of high school, and you don't get much more highly ranked than Jason Marshall. And, and Corey Collier, Collier is obviously a really good player, too. You start looking at composites, Marshall's 29th overall, Collier's 83rd. But you mentioned there's a little bit of disagreement in terms of where Collier is. He's a lot higher on rivals than he is on 24-7. So, you know, I think you need to take that into account. The composite is, is an average of the three services, and it's usually pretty reliable. But obviously when you're looking at a guy's top end versus, you know, maybe the risk of a bust, that's that's when you start getting those, those wider distributions. Um, Two very, very good players, two defensive players, which has been a trend, obviously, for Florida over the last few years. And, you know, somebody, especially in Marshall, who might be able to come in and start day one. Now, he won't be because you'll have Kyrie Elam and Marco Wilson out there, hopefully. But um, a guy of that kind of talent who can come in and, and can lock things down gives you a lot of depth, gives you the ability to have an injury, gives you the ability to put somebody really, really skilled on special teams. We talk about that a lot here. You know, being able to have Chris Rainey and, and Jeff Demps on special teams in those early years um, in the Urban Meyer heyday made a big difference. Those special teams made plays. We haven't seen that yet under Dan Mullen, but certainly if he can get a couple of game-changing plays through special teams with his ability to get coax something out of the offense and, and then the guys that he's bringing in on defense, you can really start to get encouraged about where Florida's going to be, especially on the defensive side of the ball in a few years. But, um, you know, obviously still a lot of work to do, still a lot of work to fill out this class. And, um, you know, if you start looking at average player rankings and, and Florida's still got a ways to go and probably needs to process out a couple of guys on the lower end if they're going to bring, bring in some highly rec- highly rated guys. But, um, you know, two top 100 guys, guys out of Miami where you're bringing people out from a uh, – from a location that isn't necessarily a recruiting hotbed for Florida, at least not at the elite level, um, does start to indicate that Florida's starting to make inroads in places and that the winning does matter, um, you know, and, and and it's nice to see that start to translate. Yeah, well, so you, we kind of mentioned there the two big DBs or more defensive players and really good defensive recruiting since Dan Mullen's been the head coach at Florida. Uh, so right now, 25 commits, of course, six are defensive backs. So there are a few ways to, to, to look at that. Um, first of all, you know, if Kamar Wilcoxon does indeed reclassify, then that leaves five defensive back commitments and 24 commitments overall for this class. But either way, you know, Kamar Wilcoxon set to take on a role at a, out an outside cornerback. That's the same for Jason Marshall, uh, Jordan Young in the class as well. You know, Collier Moore is set to start at a free safety spot to me. Donovan McMillan more of that strong safety linebacker, linebacker hybrid. Then Dakota Mitchell's set to kind of play nickel. And that's how I see it in the roles defined for, for, for everyone right now. Most of these guys are versatile and, and can play multiple spots. That's kind of where I project it now. But, um, you know, look, you, um, you know, Florida needed these numbers. You, you look at the roster right now, and Brad Stewart, Donovan Steiner, Sean Davis, Quincy Linton, Marco Wilson, you know, could all you know, take their talents to the NFL, graduate. Uh, so the Gators needed a big class uh, to follow up last year's pretty good haul uh, of Jahiri Rogers, Ethan Pouncey, Rashad Torrance, Avery Helm, Mordecai McDaniel, Travez Johnson. I mean, it's going to be a lot of competition on that back end and good competition from you know, well-thought-of recruits here uh, from these guys in the last two you know, classes. And you, know, you pair that with you know, all those guys and, and guys who have been on campus like Kyrie Elam and, and Jadon Hill and Chester Kimbrough who are all really thought highly of uh, Trey Dean maybe for another year as well, maybe even Amari Bernie in certain situations, Will. So I mean, Florida's really filling up the back end with some high-level talent, and competition is going to bring out the best in everybody. Some versatility back there as well, so you'll see some guys you know, probably shuffle um, in, in certain spots, in certain situations. Look, the game of college football right now, it's, it's a passing game. You're starting to see it mirror the NFL in certain ways. We saw what LSU was able to do last year, saw what Florida was able to do last year, four or five receivers – 
on the field, you got to combat that. And you go, you go five, six DBs on the field. You know, Florida's not recruiting too many defensive backs here. This is about the perfect number for what they're losing and what the game of college football is showing right now, Will. Well, and for what we saw last year, right? I mean, the defensive backs really struggled. Yeah. There, there was at least one play in each game where an opposing offensive player got completely behind the defense. Now, the the offense was there was able, a lot of overthrows. Well, the <laughs> offense wasn't always able to take advantage, but you know, if you go back early in the Tennessee game, there's a play where Gorantano has a tight end wide open over the middle and completely misses him, and it could have changed the complexion of that game. You go back to the game against against Kentucky, there were a couple of opportunities, and Kentucky actually hit it, which is one of the reasons why Florida had to had to come back. You look at the game against Georgia, they completely blow the coverage against Lawrence Cager, and that's the dagger that ends the game. And then you see the same thing against LSU where you've got Jamar Chase getting hit on the long on the long pass um, where uh, where C.J. Henderson sort of got picked off by his own guy. And, you know, you can't do that. Right? I mean, the, the reality is, is if you're going to play the kind of defense Todd Grantham wants you to play where you're going to be aggressive on the outside, you're not going to be able to have guys getting behind the defense on a consistent basis. And that was something that we saw a lot last year. I, I'm actually Auburn was the same way, right? Bo Nix had a wide receiver mm-hmm. wide open and almost overthrew him. But thankfully when he, he had to dive for it and went down at like the, the 10 or the 13 or something like that. And then I don't think Auburn was able yeah. to convert that into a touchdown. Um, so was and, that and the Chase, same drive that he threw an interception? In yeah, I think, I think yeah. it was like two or three plays yeah. later he throws an interception. So, you know, the, the reality is is that guys were getting behind the defense last year. Even when they weren't getting behind the defense last year, there were you know safeties taking bad angles, corners who were being forced to play off. And, you know, people complained, I think, extensively about the coverages that were being played against Georgia. But then you see the play with Cager and you realize why, why Grantham wasn't able to come after Fromm. Because when you come after Fromm and you don't trust your guys on the back end to prevent that big hit, well, that's going to be a problem. So, yes, competition on the back end is going to be important for if Grantham stays at Florida for an extended period of time. It's going to be very, very important because he wants to send blitzes, but you can't do it if you can't trust your corners in one-on-one and if you can't trust your safeties when you have one single high safety. So as they, as they bring in more talent, as they bring in guys to compete, it's going to be – um, it's going to allow more versatility within the scheme as they get these guys in and get them developed. All right, and then uh, looking at the class right now, Will, I kind of wanted to look through. There's been a lot of conversation on uh, social media, Twitter, and and all that about about you know defense versus offense. And, and you know, I know our, our good friend Bill Sykes has been talking to to you and I behind the scenes, and he's going to take a really in depth look at, at Mullen's history of recruiting the defensive side of the ball. Uh, and compare that to his offensive side. And uh, a lot of people were, you know, kind of just looking at it and just maybe how much better just pure recruiting has been, you know, not development and, and all that. We know Mullen's reputation for developing offensive players has been pretty good on the defensive side of the ball too, and maybe even a little higher, you know, talent level uh, to work with. So out of the top ten players in in this class, and that is counting Carmar, Will Coxon, and, and Juco Dewan Black right now, five are on defense and five are on offense uh, in the – top 10 players of the class so far the top three players in the class are all the defensive side of the ball <laughs> Jason Marshall Corey Collier and Tyreek Sapp and all three are top 100 players on the 24-7 sports composite wide receiver Trevante Rucker is rated as the highest rated offensive recruit followed by quarterback Carlos Del Rio Wilson uh, to round out the top five players in the class so far if you want to take away Will Coxon since he'll probably reclassify into one black because he's coming from Juco 
Then you add tight end Gage Wilcox and uh, uh, linebacker Chief Borders uh, to the top 10 recruits in the class. And you get six on offense of Rucker, Del Rio, Wilson, uh, Dejon Reynolds, Marcus Burke, Charles Montgomery, and Gage Wilcox. On defense, you get Marshall, Collier, Sapp, and linebacker Chief Bortles uh, that make up the top 10 uh, players currently without Wilcox and, and DeWan Black. So that will change. <laughs> That's just kind of where we stand uh, right now. Most of the top targets uh, you know, left on the board uh, are on the defensive side of the ball, Will, uh, and that includes recent and just as of today, recent Ohio State decommit uh, defensive lineman Tamisa Adelie. Hopefully I'm saying that right. <laughs> so uh, we'll see hopefully and sometime soon. Defensive lineman Bryce Langston. Um, that's another defensive lineman the Gators are, are heavy and, and really in on. And also uh, safety Terry and Arnold. Uh, linebacker Xavier Sori. I'll keep an eye on LSU commit uh, State of Florida linebacker Keanu Coat and Miami defensive tackle uh, Savion Collins from Palmetto as well. Is he kind of we, – we've heard flip candidate from – flip candidate from him uh, for a couple months now, a few months. I think if he had his mind, uh, to, if he had his decision, uh, he would probably flip. I know his mom may be wanting close to home and stick to Miami there. So we'll see how all that plays out. Uh, but as far as offense goes, you know, try and get one more offensive lineman. See if you can flip uh, wide receiver Ja'Cory Brooks or Christian Leary from Alabama. But for now, Will, Gators have 12 commitments on offense, 12 on defense, and one long snapper for the 25 players. So, you know, th- there's been a lot of conversation, as I said, about the, the offensive recruiting versus the defensive recruiting. Uh, Numbers-wise, it's probably been slanted towards the defense. But right now, as this class stands, 12 on offense, 12 on defense, but it looks like a pretty maybe uh, heavy top defensive finish for this class. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I'll have to – I'll reserve judgment until I see what Bill's put together because, like you said, he's he's – He's behind the scenes and, and getting the itch again, which is great to see. But um, yeah, the reality is is that when you go and look at the value of recruits in terms of performance, one of the things you can't really separate is that the defensive line becomes really, really important. When you look at teams that are top five in defense, typically they've recruited really, really well on the defensive line. Typically they've recruited very, very well in the top seven. The defensive backs become a little bit less important, and then the offensive linemen become – become really don't seem to correlate with with recruiting ranking at least in terms of top 10 performance and so I think you can probably get away with a little bit less than elite recruiting on the offensive side of the ball whereas you can't on the defense so if you told me that Florida was going to have to be elite on one side recruiting and, and sort of mediocre on the other or just good on the other I'd tell you I'd want them to be focused on the defensive side of the ball um, again, I think I think a big part of it is just their response to what's going on in college football, a recognition that if you've got defensive backs and you've got guys like um, like even tr- like Trey Dean, but Amari Bernie, guys who can switch positions, who have the ability to come up and tackle, but then also have the ability to participate in coverage, that those sort of versatile guys are valuable, and they they just seem to be stockpiling them, and so. Um, I'm a little bit worried about the depth on the defensive line, though obviously Gravon Dexter is is, a, is hopefully going to be a stud and going to be able to be a fixture there for three years. Um, but the, the defensive line is where I would say, okay, that's where they need to bulk up if they're going to bulk up on the defensive side of the ball. As far as the, the concentration, I, mean, I think you take the best players when you can get them. Obviously, you need some roster balance. But, you know, John Hevesy is not famous for bringing in four- and five-star offensive linemen. He's famous for bringing in three-star offensive linemen and then having them play in the NFL. <laughs> and as long as that continues to happen, I mean, the development of Ethan White last year was – 
was significant, right? So they saw a guy who I think a lot of other people saw as somebody that was going to have to sit for a couple of years while he lost the weight. And they brought in White. They got him with Nick Savage. He lost enough weight to where they said, hey, we're going to put you on the field. And the minute they put him on the field, he had he showed a skill that perhaps wasn't there when he was you know, 50, 60, 70 pounds heavier. And being able to see those kinds of guys is a skill, and that's something that Hevesy seems to be pretty good to do. And I think people forget the Pounceys were not top 50 players. I mean, they weren't <laughs> they weren't. They weren't chopped liver. <laughs> ranked a thousandth either, but I mean, I think one of them was like two thirty, and one was like three fifty. Um, you know, so a, a middle four star and a and a high three star, and obviously that turned out pretty well. So, um, you know, I, I think overall you want your recruiting classes to be excellent. How you get there, I think, is a little bit less important. But if you had to emphasize one side. I would say you want to emphasize the defensive side. And I do wonder whether it's an intentional thing by Mullen to focus mm-hmm. his attention on that side to make sure that he has an elite defense because he's confident in his ability to take guys who maybe have holes in certain places and be able to cover those on offense. Bingo. That's kind of kind of where I, I stand with that, too, uh, in, in regards to that. Um, don't get me wrong. They're, they're going after high-level recruits on offense, and they're going other places. Uh, but you know, I do think he has a certain confidence in what he's able to do on that side of the ball and uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he lets Todd grant them, and, and, and that defensive side of the ball kind of just they handle it. And maybe the, the better recruiters are on that side of the ball as well. Because look, if you, when you talk about Mullen's circle, it, it's what John Hevesy and, and and Brian Johnson and, and and Billy Gonzalez. You know, that's that's the guys he's been with for for a while, and he's coached um, and been a part of of recruiting uh, Brian Johnson back in the day. So that's uh. You know that's his offensive inner circle, and he's just really trustworthy of those guys of um, being able to do developable, I mean, the, the, the developmental on, on the offensive side of the ball. So I think that has a lot to do with it, and maybe the better recruiters and the, and the more go getters on the for, in the recruiting world are on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, everybody wants a quick fix to to what's deemed as recruiting issues. And I know people think I'm negative, and that's fine. Sometimes I probably am. But, you know, the reality is, is Mullen is recruiting at the almost the exact level that he's recruited the last three years. So if you think that seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth is good enough, then that's what we're that's where we're going to end up this year, most likely. Um, you know, if, if they bring in Adelaide and they bring in Terry and Arnold, and that's sort of the end of the class, they're going to end up at a score that would have been historically ninth or tenth. If they can bring in a, if they can flip Taylor, let's say from Miami, and maybe bring in another five-star guy who's somewhere between twentieth and thirtieth, then that would get you up to historically where you'd be around sixth. But based on the, the recruiting is a little bit top-heavy this year, and so it's probably more like eighth. So you know, sixth is really the ceiling for Florida at this point. I think probably for for recruiting, which obviously sixth is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the floor is like twelfth, right? And and so <laughs> there's quite a bit of variation because they have to add high level top 100 five star guys to really move the needle at this point and and catch up to some of the teams that are out there. So you know, it, it's um, it is what it is, right? I mean, at this point, you look at it, and you say, all right. Mullen is not going to be recruiting at the 94.0 average player ranking that teams like Florida or Georgia and Alabama and Ohio state are at. That's the reality. It doesn't mean he's a bad coach. It doesn't mean he's a bad recruiter. It just means that his recruiting is not at the level of some of the competition that's out there. And you see that when you look at Georgia, I mean, Georgia, if you count 18 through 21 in terms of classes where teams and, and in 21, obviously you're just looking at where the classes are now, you know, Georgia's recruited 17, five stars and 54, four stars. Florida's got two, five stars and 58, four stars and 33, three stars versus 16 for Georgia. Obviously the transfers make a difference and they sort of help 
help uh, bridge that gap. Obviously, George has had some people leave, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to say it's an elite job. It's not an elite job. But at the same time, I think these are really good players who are going to represent Florida well. And with Mullen and the strengths he has game planning and scheming and developing, I think he's going to be able to get a lot out of these guys and make things interesting. Yep, and I get a, a lot of conversation about numbers as well and, and how it may work out. Right now, Florida's at 25 uh, commits, and we'll see. You know, I don't get into the counters and all that stuff. It's, yeah, to me, and one reason I don't, it's not going to stop Florida for getting who they if, if, if a high layer if a high level player wants to get in this class, they'll find a way. The numbers always, <laughs> yeah, the numbers always work themselves out. It, it, it just it's nothing I've ever really worried about as far as scholarship numbers and, and encounters and all that. Does it matter? It, it does matter. It's just it's, if if these high level recruits that we just discussed and Arnold and Sorry and Code and Collins and Oh, that don't get me wrong. Florida's not going to get six of those guys in, but you know we'll see who we'll see what guys want in. But you know Florida will make it work. You know teams make it work, and that's just, just the way it goes. So I wouldn't be concerned about you know the twenty five, twenty seven number that maybe be thrown out there. If the guys want in, they'll find a way to get them in. So normally I would agree with you, but because we have no idea what the hell is going to happen, and yeah, there may point. be a whole lot of transfers out there. All the transfers that were brought in last year who, t- who, who are taking up counters may make a difference. Right? Good point. Yeah, well, unprecedented obviously, times. Unprecedented times. Uh, right obviously, you really, wouldn't predict yeah. when you're doing roster management that there's going to be a global pandemic yeah. and that Ohio State's just going to decide not to play for a year. <laughs> At the same time, um, you know those transfers that they brought in count. And, and I don't know how that's going to work, and nobody knows how that's going to work, and nobody knows whether those guys are going to be – are going to desire to transfer, whether they're going to be eligible to transfer, and quite honestly, whether the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 are going to decide not to play as well. But that is here, one thing. Here, here, here they go, Will. If they're transferring, they got a week, and, or they got a month and a couple of weeks. <laughs> tell you what, man, I love Kyle Trask, but if Justin Fields wants to play, um, I, I think we'll make room for him. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's the only place where I can see it making a difference is if the transfer portal gets wild. Yeah. Um, you know, do you have enough spots to bring in the people that you want to bring in there? But yeah, obviously, you know, you look at this and you say, okay, there are guys being offered scholarships who are low three stars who this happens every year at elite recruiting programs where you give a guy an offer and basically tell him, you know, we're going to honor that unless some, somebody else comes along who just, we can't, we can't pass up. And then you let him know, Hey, it's uh you know, it's not going to work out, and then that guy decommits, and the opposing fan base makes fun of you. But the reason he decommitted is because you told the, <laughs> told the kid you didn't necessarily didn't necessarily want him there, and and uh, give him a chance to play someplace someplace else rather than riding the pine. So, yeah, there are ways to figure that out. I'm sure Florida will be able to figure it out. All right, well, here we go. Uh, let's take a look at some of Gator Nation's thoughts here on uh, the recent recruiting news and get the reaction there. Kevin uh, uh, Harris says, uh, these are the battles we have to continue winning. It's also big for program perception. These are the types of players who can sway other elite recruits to choose UF. And, Will, that's a good point, too. I've always that, – that's one. That's another reason I, I like the whole um, – you know, not just for recruiting, but, you know, getting a high level five star four star and important positions and important where they come from as well you you know you're getting high level recruits from down there in south florida and that's going to send you know shockwaves and right now you know florida and miami as far as in-state schools 
are owning are owning recruiting. Florida State is nowhere to be found, even close to the level of recruiting Florida and Miami's doing right now. But yeah, you get these high level recruits, and I've always said stars follow stars, and you start getting this, and it gets the ball rolling, and. We just went through a list of players that Florida's in on, and all these guys left over pretty much are, are in the you know high-level four-star, five-star range uh, of maybe finishing this class out. So you know, th- there is a perception of there of, uh, of getting good ones and good ones following. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely, right? I mean, you, you don't lose 50 pounds before you lose 10, and that, that's sort of the way this works, right? I mean, th- there are holes that you can pick within any recruiting class, really, and there are holes that you can pick in this one. You know, we've already talked about offense, defense. We've talked about points. But at the end of the day, you bring in guys who are five-star, high-level, top 100 guys who are four-stars, and, and you got to be happy with that because you got to start somewhere. And, and certainly Florida is starting to do that, you know, with, with Marshall this year and Dexter last year, right? And, and um, you know, guys like Xavier Henderson last year as well. So, um, you know, it's starting to turn around. It's, it's slower than some of us who look at the numbers would like but again you got to start somewhere absolutely absolutely here so uh, mike henry up there in tennessee uh says uh this is kind of the momentum dan needed as we always knew he could develop talent hopefully this will only continue going forward with the play on the field dbu continues on charlie O'Turf says definitely a move in the right direction beat out your in-state rival and landed at least one maybe two guys that would be takes anywhere class isn't elite yet but you're in position where two to three more big additions and it is kind of what we're uh, dis- discussing here. Um, uh, Gator Cowboys says, I love going into Dade County and getting elite talent game changers. Absolutely, absolutely. Taylor, uh, Taylor Chase, uh, we've killed it on defense the last two cycles. Need the offensive staff to catch up. So <laughs> kind of a point there we were uh, discussing. Uh, Nose is getting me for a second. Uh, Perry Mason uh, says, uh, Unreal big-time recruiting. Dan, the man, and the staff deserve major props for working hard. Uh, think what's going on to uh, happen in the future with how early they were on Collier. Uh, the future is bright. And yeah, I mean, they were in early on Collier, of course. Uh, that was kind of the storyline there and the storyline for Marshall, just being able to rip him away from, from Miami and uh, Alabama uh, recently, Will. So now another aspect we haven't really hit there. I did hit on it yesterday, but Will, you know, it's kind of just getting your point here is, you know, Miami was the team to beat here uh, the last week or so. Um, then it was Miami-Alabama battle and, uh, I mean, look, we, we've seen these recent recruiting battles where, hey, look, Florida's in really good shape. Expect this wide receiver commitment for, for Florida. And then, lo and behold, Saban and Alabama comes and swipe, swoops in and, and gets them. But uh didn't work this time, and, and the Gators were able to beat an elite school and the school that was thought to be trending. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's always important. I think I'll – I'll believe the tide has turned when we get a running back commit who's a high-level guy <laughs> who's, you know, from Lakeland or something. Um, but uh, – you know, I, I mean, obviously we, we need skilled players and, and those guys are going to have to come. But, um, you know, it, again, it, it's really good to be able to go into somebody else's backyard and take the players. But Miami hasn't had a really a really strong last couple of years either, right? And so you should be able to go in and take Miami's players. You should be able to go in and take Florida State's players. The fact that there was some Alabama noise and we were able to pull them away from Alabama – makes a huge difference and they're going to need to win a few Georgia battles coming up over the next couple of years. And that's really going to be where the tides turned. And, you know, if you think about, it, I know Bill a couple of years ago came on and talked about basically the Florida, Florida state game sort of dictated who won the recruiting battle. You know, it was it, like where those teams wound up in recruiting one over the other was almost directly tied to what happened during the, uh, during, during the regular season in that game. And you wonder whether that'll happen with Georgia too, that if they can get over that Georgia hump, will it start to sort of open the floodgates? 
All right, a couple more thoughts here before we move on. Uh, Maverick says, uh, add Arnold, uh, and this is possibly the best deep defensive back class ever for the Gators. DBU is loaded for years to come. Um, well, I mean, that's important there, uh, of course, and what the two guys that they just got, you add Arnold, and that's going to make it good. Um, like I said, on the heels of what happened last year and, and the top, you know, a lot of the four stars on the, in the secondary that you got last year, Travis Johnson, who many consider one of the more overrated or underrated prospects um, in, in the class. And, you know, once this class is signed, sealed, and delivered, we'll have to go back and, and look how it compares to uh, some of the, the recent classes, you know, going back to the you know, most champs days in the secondary that he was signing at his time here. Yeah, that's what I was about to say is I'll need to go back and look at those Joe Hayden, Janoris Jenkins classes. I need to go back and look at the uh, you know, Major Ride, Ahmad Black, and then yeah. and then you've also got the Keanu Neal, Marcus right. May. Um, you know, <laughs> Hargraves, you, you, yeah. Hargraves. Tabor, you, you, Tabor Wilson, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, the reality is there's been a pretty good stream of defensive backs who've come through Gainesville, and, and uh, if you're being talked about in that, vain then then certainly it's a big deal and and from a points perspective this may end up being the best class that florida's brought in i don't know i'd have to go look at it but um, that's a lot of production to follow up on that's for sure absolutely absolutely here so we'll uh we'll move on uh to the next thanks to everybody who uh sent in their reactions uh, to that sent that out on twitter and uh thanks for all their interaction of course uh been a lot of fun for gator nation <laughs> the last couple of days with these big recruits and uh kind of just capping it off here we're getting some of your thoughts out there so here we go uh will and now this is going to look a whole lot different uh now um gators were eight in the coaches poll but uh you know clemson was number one in that ohio state was number two so does everybody just move up now is that how that works <laughs> i don't i don't know how they're going to uh do all this so uh but you know georgia came in at number uh, alabama came in at number three there uh georgia was four so that was your top four uh there two sec teams uh then LSU was ranked fifth, so that was three SEC teams in the top five. Uh, and um, so, you know, as I said, this was <laughs> going to be a little bit different. Six SEC teams were ranked in the preseason poll. Florida came in at number eight, Will. Auburn was 11. Texas A&M was 13. Um, so, uh, of course, no other conference had more than four. Uh, but the Big Ten had Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So, <laughs> I mean, that's uh, – we'll have to see if the coaches poll gets revised uh, anytime soon. I'm sure they're just going to wait on the, the word – uh, of what's going on there so uh we'll with that you know we got the coach's poll last week and the Gators were eighth of course there but we also got the news of uh Florida adding Texas A&M and Arkansas so they haven't really heard from you, your, your thoughts on that uh, our listeners haven't heard your thoughts on that what's the what's your thoughts on the adding uh, game nine and ten of Arkansas and Texas A&M I mean I love the idea of Felipe Franks coming back to the swamp that's a good one and then and then you know Texas A&M is is a High quality game, but not one that I'm scared of. That's one where I look at, and I think Florida's going to get a quality win um, that people look at and say, "Hey, that was a big that was a big deal." But Kellen Mond is the type of quarterback that Grantham really sort of eats up. Um, I'm, I'm not real scared of of him at quarterback. I think his track record is indicative that pressure is going to make him average, and I think Grantham will be be able to deliver that. I think more holistically, it's interesting. Originally, the the thought was sort of floated that they were just going to get the next two. Um, you know the next two teams on the rotation that would have made that would have been A&M and Alabama I think for Florida mm -hmm. um, I think the SEC kind of decided and, and I know that there's been some talk about Florida and Georgia having it a little bit easier or at least trying to ease the burden on on some of the better and Alabama on some of the better teams I, I suspect it has more to do with TV that you know 
Missouri versus Arkansas just isn't the same draw that Florida Arkansas is. That if Florida plays Arkansas, the Florida fans are gonna are gonna show up and they're gonna watch it. And so you want to put Vanderbilt against Alabama because um, you know you know the Alabama fans are gonna turn tune into that, and the national audience is gonna tune into that as well. So I, I think they probably set up the schedule to be as even on a strength of schedule perspective as they could because they want it to come down to the wire, right? I mean, they, they don't want two teams that are 10-0 and 0, and then a bunch of teams that are 7-3 and 3 just because then there's no drama. And then the other thing is is that they wanted matchups that they could imagine people in the country were going to watch, not just marquee matchups and then a bunch of sort of fluff on the back end. And I think that was sort of probably what drove the decision-making more so than trying to make it easier for the elite guys. It was more... How do you maximize the viewership for the uh, for the TV partners that they need to keep happy throughout all this? Well, I will also think looking at the complete 10 games. Don't just look at the two that were added. Um, I'm, the soapbox moment for me with this one. Uh, I think they were trying to make it pretty even uh, for, for the conference, and I'll, I'll explain kind of how I thought here. I know there's some thought that the SEC kind of protected their contenders here. That is true in a way, but you know that was by keeping the schedule as balanced to me throughout the whole conference uh, as it can be overall through 10 games. And look, when playing 10 conference games, you only have 13 opponents to choose from once you take yourself out, out, out of that. So, you know, just in that regard, the schedules overall will be pretty even. Florida already had LSU and Ole Miss out of the West, so it made sense to give them one more top-tier opponent, Texas A&M, and then one more bottom-tier opponent in Arkansas. Georgia already had Alabama and Auburn two top-tier SEC West opponents, so it made sense that they were going to be handed Mississippi State and Arkansas. Now, Arkansas drew Florida and Georgia because they had Tennessee and Missouri. Uh, Missouri already had Arkansas and Mississippi State. You know, easier teams in the SEC West. Bottom-tier teams in the SEC West. They drew Alabama and LSU. Now, it would have been fun to see Florida, Georgia, Alabama, LSU all play each other. That would have been a blast for little four-pod team there and, and see who comes out. Uh, but, you know, would it have been fair? Uh, would it have hurt the SEC in the long run for the college football playoff? Maybe. Uh, and you're not taking that chance there. So, what, to me, what the SEC did was, was create schedules that were pretty close to even for everyone, no matter the stature or, or perception of your program. Look, before the Big Ten you know, went, went, went by the wayside, Ohio State didn't draw Wisconsin or Minnesota in the Big Ten, two teams that were thought to be uh, pretty good in the Big Ten. Clemson has only two ranked opponents on their schedule with Notre Dame and Virginia Tech. They avoid North Carolina. So, you know, with the new SEC schedule, you know, Florida's playing number four, Georgia, number five, LSU, number 13, Texas A&M. So, and I guess to make some people happy, Florida could have, you know, had to play number three, Alabama, number 11, Auburn, too, uh, just to make some people happy. But, uh you know, Georgia had uh, Alabama had Georgia Tennessee on the schedule with a very tough SEC West, so of course they were going to get somebody like Kentucky and Missouri and, and not Florida. So if you want to say the SEC protected its contenders, then say so by saying they also kept the schedule as even as possible for for a ten game conference schedule for everybody else in the league as well. Again, I go back to TV dollars, right? That it behooves the SEC to have people interested in their conference all the way throughout the conference season. And so if you give Florida ostensibly a, a win against Arkansas, then it makes that Florida-Georgia game all the more important when it goes on, right? If you give Florida, Alabama, and Auburn, and they end up having a couple of hiccups, then that Florida-Georgia game may not mean anything, right? Because one team has two losses in the SEC, and one team doesn't have any, and, and vice versa, right? I mean, if you, if you load up Georgia with all sorts of – 
with all the studs from the West. And, and you know, yes, that particular game ends up being better, but it doesn't make the season as a whole better. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think they were evening things out. I think they were looking at their TV partners and saying, how do we make – um, how do we make ESPN happy? How do we make the SEC network happy? How do we make our advertisers happy so that they keep spending money on this stuff? Because let's be honest, advertising revenue is going to be tough to come by as, as you know, the pandemic extends. Like the fact that we've got all these shutdowns is going to impact people's ability to pay for commercials. You're going to have to make it worth their while. And if Florida Georgia doesn't mean anything in October or whenever it's played, I suppose, but if Florida Georgia doesn't mean anything because Florida lost to Alabama earlier in the year, you're not doing your TV partners any 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 favors. And I think that's where the, the scheduling really lies in. I mean, let's be honest. I know everyone wants to claim that there's bias whenever anything like this happens, but at the end of the day, it's all about money. And so, you know, if the money is driven by the TV guys, and obviously it's going to be driven by TV revenue because they're likely not going to have a whole lot of fans in the stands. If the revenue is driven by TV, then that's where I look when I say, all right, what's the reasoning for behind all this stuff? And I bet you, and I haven't, they, so they haven't actually released when people are going to be playing, right. but I guarantee there's going to be a marquee SEC game every week. And that marquee game is going to be tied in with understanding who's likely to win the week before and who, you know, because they want a bunch of six and six and O teams playing one week and then a bunch of seven and O teams playing the next week. And, and they're going to want to build up to that. And I think the way the schedule is going to be arranged is hopefully going to allow that. Yeah. Good, good thoughts there. Good thoughts uh, there. So, um, well, Big 12, they, they did just announce they're going to move forward. Uh, so that's uh, three power five conferences right now. The SEC, the ACC, and Big 12 with plans to uh, move forward uh, with football season. So everything's tumultuous out there right now. Um, and three Power Five conferences. And look, the AAC uh, is still, for as far as I know, also still planning to go out there. So, you know, maybe you have a, you know, kind of, and, and the AAC has been pretty competitive, um, you know, maybe even more so than the ACC at times, uh, maybe even more so than the Pac-12 at times in, in recent years. Uh, I wouldn't put them up there with the SEC or Big Ten or anything like that, but the AAC been competitive somewhat. So, uh, hey, look, you, you throw them in the mix a, a, as well. Maybe you still have your college football four and playoff four. I still don't know if I throw one of the AAC teams in there just because they're one of the four conferences playing, but uh yeah, it gives us more football in the fall uh, to watch, uh, hopefully. So hopefully, Will, this is a good sign. Uh, and, hey, look, they still may decide not to play. This doesn't mean right now football is going to be played September 26th uh, with, with the SEC, ACC, Big 12. is a good sign that they're going to wait as long as they can to, to make the right decision and, and not rush to any decision of, of not playing keep gathering information and, and hopefully all is good. And when we're kicking off football, September 26th in the sec, but will, man, I just, uh, the thing with me in, in this, that you know, I want to extend the conversation we had earlier. How does this hurt the big 12 or the big 10 and the pac 12 in, in the future? Like will, will recruits look at this and say, Hey, I'm not sure. And this may be the wrong way to look at it, but you know, look, I'm not sure they're going to do everything they can do for me to be on the field and, and, and me better myself. And you know, these two conferences, the players obviously want to play. The coaches want to coach. The coaches want to coach their players. You know, does this have a residual effect of, especially if these three conferences do play this year and they get money? Look, they're going to be losing money anyway. This, that's already been set in stone. They're 
they're going to be losing money this year. It's, it's not the same. They're not going to have this. Uh, I'm not sure the TV deal had to be worked out. The, the, as Will said, the, the, the stands and all that are not going to be full. They're not going to make as much money as they have been in the past. They'll be losing money in that regard. You know, but this, in a way, helps further a, a gap if these teams play. The, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, they're, they've made that decision. They're going to lose money. They're not getting anything. Nothing, and don't get me started. It's not going to happen in spring. Football's not going to happen in spring. That, that's, I don't even know why it's being thrown out right now. Uh, if it is, it's going to be an ugly product, and it won't last long. So, uh, but well, it's just if these three conferences—the SEC, the Big Twelve, and the ACC—play, it's going to solidify them as you know. To me, having a step up on on the competition in, in these next few years. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that that I want to say is that I recognize that COVID nineteen is is, yes. is serious, right? That yep. that we're talking about sports. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that, right? That if you're over 65, if you've got a comorbidity conceivably, um, those sorts of things. I mean, we need people to stay indoors. Um, but I do think that we also need to recognize that the evidence thus far suggests that younger people are much less susceptible to this. And I think some of the stuff that's come out recently about the the heart disease that's associated with this and the inflammation of the heart is a little bit irresponsible because that's a known complication from other viruses as well. We've become really well, we become really well versed at being able to diagnose it. And certainly you don't want that to happen to somebody, but if it does, then the person is going to have to sit out, but that would be true whether they contracted it at home or whether they contracted it on the field or whether they contracted it during practice or any of that stuff. So I, I want to say that up front because I do recognize that this is an emotionally charged issue. That's a political issue at this point. Um, but the thing, the thing that flummoxes me is that, there don't appear to be any clear metrics about how they're keeping people safe. So if you have students all over campus who are coming back, who are living in the dorms, who are going to class, um, you, know, you ostensibly have to keep them safe. You have to keep them separate. But you're not doing any of the testing. You're not doing any of the any of the – you can socially distance football players because you have money to be able to socially distance and test the football players. The other thing is, is that these guys, if they end up going home, are going to end up in situations where they're not being tested all the time, where they're in an environment that's a little bit less safe. And so I, I think it's a safer environment for them to be there. I don't think that the football necessarily adds a complication to that. So I don't really understand why the decision was made. And I think that's going to be the thing that really sort of pushes recruits. You know, you mentioned recruits. I, I think the thing that's going to push them is if I'm a recruit, if I'm a parent, I'm going to be asking, why did you make this decision? I want to know why you made the decision. And if the decision is based in data that, you know, the kid was going to be at risk, then maybe I want to go to your school. But if the decision was based on something that I don't necessarily agree with in terms of the, the risk profile, then I'm going to push my kid to a different place. And I think a lot of it is going to be based on what happens. So if the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 play and they're able to play successfully and they're able to manage their way through the season and they're able to isolate people. I mean, Florida, there were a couple of tweets going around yesterday about Florida's players not having any COVID positives um, you know, recently because they've been following strict social distancing, hand washing, masking, all those sorts of guidelines. And, and to be able to go through and be completely clean means that it can be done. So if there's a successful season this year with those three conferences, I think it's going to really put egg on the face of the Big Ten and the Pac-12. And I think, you know, this is something I wrote about UCF last year. And, and it was after their AD was chirping and, and really sort of taking shots at Foley. 
And and the thing that I said was is that you got to be careful because Foley's got an awful lot, or I'm sorry, Strickland. Strickland. That yeah. Strickland's got an awful lot of power, and, and he's going to remember that people were taking shots at him. And I think that's what's probably going to come out of this is that the three conferences that were sort of left hanging and felt like they were being leaned on this week are going to remember that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 did not have their best interests at heart, that they were not a partner of five conferences, that they were individual conferences who were going to try to use the media, try to use inside sources to push, you know, sort of to basically float the idea, see what happened out in the ether, and then make the decision they wanted to make anyway. And I think the the big conferences in the South are going to remember that. I think when it comes to partnering with people, I think that it's much more likely that the ACC, SEC, and Big Twelve decide to come to some sort of agreement where they basically cherry pick people out of the big out of the Big Ten and the Pac twelve if they decide they want to form a super conference, if they decide they want to they want to have more control. Because that's one of the big things in this entire endeavor is just the failure of the NCAA mm-hmm. from a leadership perspective, giving people guidance, bringing people to the table, making sure they're having conversations, having joint communication out into the open. There making sure none. that things are being leaked to Pat Forty and and you know and Matt Hayes and all those sorts of guys, where all of a sudden you've got players out there who are fighting for just being having the ability to play, um, you know. So really, the whole thing's sort of been a debacle. The Big Ten looks weak. The Pac-12 looks weak because they weren't at, at least the Big Ten was able to. You know, everybody knows they were the driving force. The Pac-12 was just sort of the little brother who kind of came along for the ride. And I think the SEC, ACC, and and Big 12 look stronger because they've been able to sort of hold out. And again, you don't need to make a decision until the middle of September. There you right? go. I mean, you push the you push the yep. decision back to late September so that you could wait. And the cases in Florida are going down. The cases in, in Texas are going down. The cases in South Carolina are going down. The only place where I think they're still maybe going up is California. Um, and so you look at what's happening and you look at sort of the trend and you look at um, the the outbreak and how it was managed and the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. You go, okay, well, what metrics allow it to be okay to come back and play? And that's where the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are going to struggle is because you, you're going to have to define it, right? If it wasn't safe now, what does it have to be at to be safe? So you mentioned spring football won't happen for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons is I don't think it's going to be safer. No. Right? I think you're going to be in the exact same situation. There's not going to be a vaccine and you're going to be looking at the exact same situation, except at that point, you know, you're asking I, I got to be honest. I'm not sure I watched the big 10 and the pack 12 play each other without the sec involved. Oh, yeah. I don't, it's not the same product. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I watch it now. I mean, I'm, I'm a fanatic, so maybe I watch it just so I can like hate tweet, but you know, I'm but not all sure. your big, all your big stars in that conference aren't going to be playing. <laughs> yeah. So, so all the guys are going pro. You're going to have like yeah. walk-ons playing on the defensive line. Um, it's, and then you're going to expect him to play two full seasons. So mm-hmm. then the next year's ruined because you've got the big, the big 10 with all sorts of injuries and the sec full strength because they had a full off season. So that's not going to work either. So it's not spring. You're delaying an entire year. That's that's essentially what they decided to do. I mean, this kind of torches March Madness too, when you think about it from a basketball perspective. And and uh, I, again, I just like to see metrics, right? Like I, I am a guy who makes decisions based on data, and then I can empathize with the emotion that goes into those decisions. But I don't think you make good decisions when you make decisions based purely on purely on emotion. And so. What is the data? What does the metric have to be for it to be safe? And I, I think, to be to be honest, I think the SEC and, and the ACC and the Big 12 need to define that too, right? Because if there is another outbreak, then how are you going to manage it? 
how, when does it get to a point where it is unsafe? And I think you should define that for the players up front so that they know and have full line of sight as to what they need to do to prevent a season from being canceled and sort of what the threshold is going to be where it becomes a point where you don't think it's safe enough and you can't play. And I think, I think the conferences need to define that. I wish the NCAA had come in, helped define that, and then you could have all this together. But that's not what happened. And so, um, yeah, man, nobody knows what's going to happen. I think the lawyers are going to make an awful lot of money off of this one. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I wish I was a lawyer. Yeah. Liability is what scares me uh, right now with all this. And so we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. But, Will, I mean, uh, two things here. Reese Davis was on ESPN, and you know, he was saying, you know, if they have this you know, data and all that stuff you're saying. We, we don't know what it is. Uh, you would assume they have it, but if the Big Ten and Pac-12, if they have that, that needs to be shared. That needs to be shared with the SEC. It needs to be shared with the ACC. It needs to be shared with the Big 12. And maybe they come to the same decision you do. Um, but, you know, look, <laughs> and, look and we'll all think, you know, with your dad and all that kind of stuff and in the medical profession, this is a funny thing with, with uh, in the medical profession as well is, look, go get a second opinion. And that's that. You know, not everybody is going to agree on just because you know the the, Pac, the Big Ten and Pac twelve had their data and and their medical advisors saying one thing. It's not I mean, look, that does not necessarily mean that everybody in the medical profession is going to see it the same way and see it that same way. You know, there's a reason you get a second opinion on, on important things going on in your life when you have something medical going on. You know, everybody's gonna. And as Will said, is COVID out there real and is it bad? Absolutely. You know, and let's make sure we're making the right decisions. Let's not make sure we're making a rash decision. So I think you know, there's a lot of time out there still to be had. But Will, how in the world does this make sense? Barry Alvarez comes out, a Wisconsin AD, and says, teams, this is for the Big Ten now, said teams will get to stay on a 20-hour week in the fall with workouts and drill work. So you mean to tell me they're going to be doing Everything pretty much normally, just not playing a football game. Are you really just not playing because of travel? Are you really not playing because guys are going to be around each other for, for, for three hours on a Saturday? Because how is that any different from the 20-hour work week and the drills and the workouts and all that stuff that they pretty much would be doing normally during a season anyway? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, I mean, that's been, that's been sort of the hallmark of, of COVID-19 is that – we don't look at the consequences of our actions. We just, it's it, that everything is viewed as a binary, right? That you either play the season or you don't. And, you know, it may be that there's an outbreak in the middle of the season and the SEC and the other conferences have to shut down. And that would be horrible, but I don't think I could fault them for it. You try, you look at the data, the data changes, and you say, okay, I'm going to make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you're willing to have guys on campus and practice to me means that you think your safety protocols are good enough for them to be on campus and practice. If you're concerned about liability, I'd be concerned about liability there, right? If, if you're concerned about travel, you know, I'd be concerned about, <laughs> I'd be concerned and, and before, about the, yeah, I gotta be I'll move on, Will, in a way that is a good decision because there is, you know, we, we've seen Florida players come out and say, look, I don't want to go back home. I don't want to go back to a situation. I want to be out of a situation. So in a way, it is a good move that they can still be on campus and still be a part of workouts. It's just if you're going to go that far and have those workouts, have the games. Well, I got to tell you right now, Dave, if, if I was playing and they, and they shut down my conference, I'd be at a bar tonight, right? <laughs> like as, as, a, as a 19, 20, 21-year-old kid who thinks he's bulletproof anyway, 
and has a lot of evidence to it because a lot of these kids have, have I'm sure done stupid stuff and they're really strong and they're, they're, you know, at peak athletic ability and, and everybody treats them like gods on campus. I mean, you know, I'd be at a bar tonight, right? I, I'd be out there drinking and be like, Hey, I'm going to have a good time. And Oh, the coach is going to yell at me tomorrow. What's he going to do? Not start me. <laughs> like, I mean, and, 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 you know, I might even have the opportunity to transfer three days from now. Right. Like, the reality is, is that the coaches aren't going to have any cudgel to make these guys behave if they don't want to. And I think when you've got 19, 20, 21-year-old guys, there's going to be a subset. I mean, we saw it with the Marlins, right? I mean, the Marlins, that's, that's guys who are between 25 and 40. And, and those guys weren't necessarily taking things seriously and were going out to places, I think, in Atlanta and, and wound up with the virus and then had it spread through the clubhouse and really sort of disrupted the major league season. And those are guys who had a real incentive to play, right? I mean, so I, I think you look look at this and say the having that on campus only works out if you've got the ability to take away starting playing time. If you've got the if you've got the ability to say, hey, on Saturday we got a game, like we need to prepare for that. There's something to prepare for. There's something to look forward to. I mean, is there anything more miserable than practicing for right. a year without any payoff? Like, God, it's just I mean, at that but, point I'm like, uh, I think I'll declare for the NFL. Yeah, <laughs> like, in, in normal situations, by but you know, last week of fall camp or whatever, they're already tired of hitting each other. Yeah, well, and, and then and then I go back to you know, so are they going to be able to wear pads? Yeah. So you're not going to hit somebody for a year and a half. It's it's again metrics, man. Like I, I don't I don't mind that they made the decision. I mind that the decision doesn't have any data driven information that comes along with it. So you're just like, oh, we're going to cancel it. Okay, that's great. Well, what was the data that helped guide your decision? What were the things that helped do that? And if you can't explain it, then um, you know, then then people are going to have a hard time swallowing it. Because, and I'll ask the same thing in the SEC when they decide to play: is what is the data, and why did you make the decision you made to play? And I think that's a fair thing to ask as well, because we are in a situation where certainly people people can come down on both sides. And you know, I wrote an article last week about it where. Obviously, I was a proponent of playing for a lot of different reasons, but um, you know there were people who came out and said, "Yeah, that's right, we need to play." I agree with you, and there were people who came out and said, "No, one player at risk is too much." Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's be honest. If one player getting it is too much, then nobody should play. Right. If that's your metric, then you can't play. If the metric is well, somebody's you know, already got it, you know, players players have already gotten it. Well, and that's the thing that really I think strikes home when you look at this is that players came to campus with it. Yeah. Right. Like just about every program tested the players when they came back and had three, four or five positives. I think I think Clemson was going for herd immunity. They had like 14 or 15 guys who had it. <laughs> yeah. Them at LSU, they played in the national championship. I think they played in the COVID national championship as well. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just look at it and say these the guy and I don't want to make light of the fact that they had the virus. What I want to say is that outside of the control of the football program, people were getting this anyway. And and so it's not as though COVID looks and says, oh, you decided not to play the football season. We'll stay away from the football players. That's not the way it works. And so I look at incentive structures. And again, I go back to if I was 19 years old and they canceled my season and I was going to have to practice 20 hours a week for the next year just to get back on the field, I'd be at a bar tonight. And I suspect there's an awful lot of guys at Ohio State who feel the same way. And you're going to get unintentional consequences from probably trying. To, I mean, I, I don't think the big 10 presidents have ill will here. I think no, they're I making the decision that yeah. they think is best for yeah. their athletes and best for their teams. 
but I think there are unintended consequences with everything. And I'd say the same thing about the lockdowns, right? That the lockdowns have unintended consequences and, and the shutdown here. I mean, the, the people I really feel sorry for isn't necessarily the players and the players I think are going to have options. The people I feel sorry for are all the people who follow the team, who make a living off the team, the people mm-hmm. who own the restaurants and the hotels and all the stuff that rely on that for their living and, and for their livelihood. And those people are going to be impacted. You know, the, the Nick Della Torres and, and Jackie Franciolis and, and those sorts of people at Ohio State, at Penn State, even at Rutgers, um, if anybody actually pays attention to them. But, you know, those are the people who are going to end up feeling this because, um, you know, with no college football, what, what are you going to do? So um, I, I think it, it's without more information, it's hard to look at it and do anything other than shake your head. And if you were on the side of thinking that you need to err on the side of player safety um, and, and one case is too many, then you're probably looking at it going, they did the right thing. If you look at it on the other side and say, you know, we need to push through this with younger people, you're going you're gonna to say, yeah, that's the wrong thing to do. I think I probably lean more towards the latter, but, you know, I can understand why people would lean towards the former. The question is, let's define it, right? And that's where the NCAA failure comes in is that, you know, it needs to be defined at a level that's not at a conference level because then you end up with this mess. Um, but, you know, as, as, as Spurrier told Dooley, um, I saw a tweet mm-hmm. earlier today, as Spurrier told Dooley, one of the teams in the ACC and SEC is going to win the championship anyway, so we didn't really miss anything. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think he's right, right? We're going to end up seeing the best teams play each other if those three conferences play. The only thing is left. Yeah, to besides deal- Ohio State, really, you're not, you know, not missing too much as yeah, far I mean, as national contenders go. Yeah, I mean, that's all we're really missing is seeing Ohio State lose in the Final Four. So, (laughs) you know, at this point, we'll just have Oklahoma, two SEC teams, Clemson, and let's go. Let's strap it up and go. That's what it's going to end up being, and, uh, you know, it'll be fun again. Oh, wow. Yeah, who knows, Will? Who knows where it goes from here? Hopefully, like I said, we have some football. Hopefully, right decisions are made, and um, we'll see where it goes from here. um, excited, you know. Hopefully, the SEC will re- uh, release the. Uh, we know the ten teams. Hopefully, they release the format of the schedule, and we know who Florida is playing, what week, and where, and when, uh, and all the details for that. But um, that's about the uh, the only thing hanging out there now, since that we know the SEC is going to move forward along with the ACC and Big Twelve as far as Power Five conferences go. So, still something to look forward to, uh, Will, that uh, we'll, uh, we'll be able to break down when it's released here. But uh, at least for the time being, we can still talk some football. Yeah, man. I mean, it's nice to have the escape. That's the whole point of that's the whole point of football. That's the whole point of college football. You know, it gives us something to sort of galvanize around. And, and obviously, as some of the professional leagues have gotten a little bit more polarizing, um, you know, college football hasn't necessarily done that. And that's been one of the things that I think – it's something that brings people together. So you hope that in, in a time where it's charged and we've got the election coming up, we've got all the, the NBA and MLB and, and the NFL is going to be kicking off soon. And Trump was on Clay Travis's podcast today railing about players kneeling again. So you got all that stuff going on. College football doesn't have all that because, you know, regardless of where you stand in your politics, I think we're all Gators and we all hate Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Or we're all Gators and we all hate Florida State. So having that sort of galvanizing thing is a good thing. I think it's a good thing for the country. I think it's a good thing for people, for their mental health, all that sort of stuff. It's certainly a good thing for me, right? <laughs> like I would never hope for the for the season to, to end. Certainly in March when this all started, we sort of looked at it and said, whoa, God, I hope, I hope the season stays. And I, I think we're moving towards that. I don't think that these other three conferences are, I think they're going to at least give it a try. And if nothing else, it's going to be fascinating to see. 
Yep, and um, tell you one thing, I'm ready for a thunderstruck at a harmonic woods tailgate. So that we we need some football. We need some football. <laughs> oh man, we got we got we got to do it over Zoom or something and, and start drinking now because yeah. uh, I've been talking about going to the bar. I need to. Need to <laughs> it's time to go. Got got me thirsty now. Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, man, uh, well, of course, news galore right now. Uh, what's coming up on Read and Reaction? Yeah, so we got another Give Them Hell Pell episode coming out. It's going to post tomorrow morning. And, uh, yeah, so Nick's really been working hard on that. So that's that's sort of a look at the Gators in the 80s, and that's always a fun one. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. <laughs> there's there's so much stuff going on. And, again, college football is supposed to be an escape, so you don't just want to focus on the politics of it and stuff like mm-hmm. that. At the same time, it's such a big part of what's going on, and it's what everybody's talking about. So I'll probably have something up about – about the conferences, and then I'll have something up about football as well, because at some point we all sort of need a release, and we need to understand, uh, or at least we need to go look and say, you know, why, why do we think Florida can beat Georgia? Because if this season does go on, that'll be the big one, and uh, and we need we need some information on that too. Absolutely, absolutely. So you can follow Will on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, readandreaction.com. I'm host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.